0: As I was going to get started for today, uh, I was going to tell a story uh, from my personal experience. But with the violence continuing in Palestine and that present in so many of our minds, I decided instead I wanted to begin today, commenting on how our ongoing discussion as a church all this fall of accelerated modern life. Uh, Jen was already using that that uh, that word, acceleration. Uh, our discussion about accelerated modern life and societal burnout. Um, I think it can offer some context to how we are all processing all of the information that's coming from Gaza. This situation, sadly, is so entrenched and overrun with justifications of violence from bad faith actors in authority positions. Like, that's that's just happening here. There's no way around it. And... You, uh, you know, as you may have followed this week, one of the difficult things that means is that it is challenging to figure out what information is true and what is misinformation. Uh, that certainly made the news this week. Um, this is largely happening on social media, which algorithmically and psychologically rewards outrage and it downvotes nuance and you know even opinions. So there is so much going on uh, in all of this. We all know that. Um, There are a lot of things that I think are, are not my place or above my pay grade to speak to, but one thing that I do think I can comment on in all of this is that modern life's prizing of speed and acceleration as our highest moral values, which is something that we've been talking about and we'll talk more about today, that exacerbates misinformation. When our highest moral goods are going fast, it exacerbates misinformation. There's so much pressure and demand on journalists to be first and fast to the news that one bad faith actor can set off a domino effect where suddenly the most credible news source in the world is aggregating unverified claims. Because we care about being fast. And in the context of war, misinformation can have very real, very violent consequences. So where I want to go in today's message as we go along here, I'm, what I'm going to be driving at is to make clear that the forces of acceleration behind our societal burnout, they are moral matters, okay? Okay? They are not isolated in their effect only to workplaces being dehumanizing, which is the most common way we use the word burnout. They're not isolated just to modern city dwellers feeling the fatigue of having to make meaning and purpose for ourselves. It's about that, but it's also that the forces for acceleration are connected to the largest systemic injustices and corruptions that plague our whole world. This is all intermingled. And I want to begin us there today. As we'll see, I think that this makes the phenomenon of societal burnout a tool in the hand of bad faith people in power to keep the status quo the status quo. And the God Jesus shows humanity is calling us, calling all, to join in God's deep solidarity with the world, especially those suffering. I hope today that... um, as Brownline Church, we can hear that call a little bit in what I'm going to share. So far, Uh, this fall. um, If you've been with us or if you're looking for a refresher of where we are, we're sort of smack dab in the middle of this series all fall that uh, we've been calling burnout. We're talking about this, uh, this, this reality that seems everywhere, that everybody always feels burnt out. It's not a unique thing. It's not something that makes you sort of fringe or on the outside. It's something everybody's experiencing, and we should pay attention to that. If that's the case, What are we doing? Let's talk about this. So we've talked about how burnout is not a problem with fringe individuals, it's a societal problem. It's in the atmosphere. It's a central feature to the way that modern life works. We visited some historical points in the 500-year story that we've been telling of time speeding up, the last 500 years is a story of how time, our experience of it, is going faster and faster and faster to the point where we get today, which is that our, all of our conceptions of a good, full life is a busy life, which exhausts us, right? But it also kind of excites us. And so we've talked about that challenge, you know, busyness makes us feel like we're in demand, like we have good stories to tell when we're sitting around at the dinner table, right? We, uh, we have a love-hate relationship with busyness, which is what makes it so hard to not conceive of the good life as a busy life. Our image this week uh, that we released on social media is uh, from the kitchen in FX's The Bear. Anybody watch The Bear? I've been mentioning The Bear recently because we, we took it in this summer. We watched it all. And uh, it's the big clock with the Every Second Counts uh, sign. Uh, if you're familiar with the show, this sign illustrates so well what we're talking about. It, the, the, the kitchen represents purpose for all of the characters in this show. But it also, we're being begged to ask, like, are they killing their souls with this every second counts reality? It, we're, we, we have both at the same time. It feels purposeful and also terrible. It excites them, but also exhausts them. And so each week, we have also been pulling from captivating invitations from Jesus to conceive of a full good life differently. Not busyness, but what, is, what are other ways we can conceive of a good life? and I'll offer another before we're done today. But before I do, I want to add yet more texture to this 500-year story that we're learning about. I want to offer, uh, uh, unpack a few more things from uh, one of our scholar sources that we've been mentioning uh, all fall, and I'll have Mark drop links to our scholars uh, in Discord if you want to read more about these folks. Today we're going to be learning from Hartmut Rosa, uh, and uh, he observes... How the challenges of acceleration, the time speeding up, are experienced differently across socioeconomic classes in a, a, in a place like America, a modern capitalist democracy. So we're going to call this the tyranny of acceleration. And, the, and I have for you up on the screen what Rosa lays out. He says, for the middle class, so that's someone like me, okay, I grew up middle class, I'm still absolutely, resolutely, middle class. The tyranny of acceleration, of speed up, keep up, all of that behind our reality is internalized. We experience it inside as guilt. Time is moving so fast, I always feel guilty I'm not using my time well enough. I feel guilty I'm not more productive. I'm not using my time well enough to be a better person, to improve my marriage, to be a better parent, to make more money, to read more important books, to be in better physical shape, to stay up to date on the news and be able to distinguish better between what's information and what's misinformation. I just feel guilty all the time. Guilty, 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 guilty. That is the way the middle class experience the tyranny of acceleration. Guilty, isn't it such a familiar symptom of burnout, right? Oh, we don't even wanna say that we're burnt out because we feel guilty. Maybe we feel guilty because our co cowork- oh no, I don't wanna like do that to my coworkers, I don't wanna do that to my partner because I just feel so guilty and so I just hide it. Guilt, because we've internalized the tyranny of acceleration. The call is coming from inside the house. It's internalized, right? In ages past, people felt guilty before a holy God. In the modern world, we feel guilty before ourselves. We are our own judge, jury, and executioner. In our secular age, in which we've become so used to everything being explainable, and we often kind of forget that there's a mysterious or spiritual side to life. We largely conceive of our lives without an involved God. We, it's funny, we, that hasn't freed us from guilt at all as 19th century atheists claimed it would. Guilt has just moved offices. It's moved from bad religion up in the sky to the private, overburdened mind. Guilt is working from home now, too. (laughs) The tyranny of acceleration is internalized for the middle class like me. But, Rosa says, for the working class and poor, the tyranny of acceleration is externally imposed on them. They experience it as outside pressure, as injustice. The time clock, the boss, the systemic structures that have no mercy, that are usually racist and patriarchal, the impenetrable bureaucracies that are so complex and full of jargon when they send you an unexpected bill in the mail that it can only be fought for or explained if you are a native English speaker and you're super familiar with white hierarchical organizations. But if you're not familiar with those things or you don't speak English as a first language, good luck trying to get that bill appealed. Societal burnout for the working class is an inner guilt. It's an externally imposed despair, a hopelessness. It leads to a feeling like the entire world is against you. And what can you do against such odds? This is serious when we talk about the poor and the working class. And of course, it's it's not only a material despair. Howard Thurman, the African-American mystic and the teacher of Dr. King, called the mental threats of the disinherited of society. That was his word for those on the outs who have their backs against the wall. He called the threats that face the disinherited the hounds of hell, the temptations to live in constant fear, to deceive in order to survive, and to hate in order to justify oneself. That is the hell that the tyranny of acceleration imposes on the working class, The disinherited, the marginalized. Underneath all of this, why are we, you know, observing this idea? Underneath all of this is a very key detail in our 500 year story that we've been talking about that I really want us to come away with. Because time always has a timekeeper, time always has a timekeeper. And those who keep time, keep morality. Those who keep time, keep morality. If we look at our 500-year story a little bit, in the pre-modern world, the medieval world, the ancient world, religion was the timekeeper, those who kept morality. For Christians, churches literally kept time for their communities by ringing bells on the hour. They were our timekeepers. They determine the rhythm and the pace of people's lives. But as modernity's story of time speeding up over the last 500 years begins, religion was eventually deemed too slow. And what took over as timekeeper was the nation state and industry with their calls to patriotism and duty to one's people or with you know, the, the, uh, the formalizing of time zones around trains and railroads. Today, it's no longer church bells or patriotism or train schedules but smartphones that keep time the products and services of the likes of apple amazon facebook twitter they determine the rhythm and pace of people's lives today silicon valley and multinational national tech companies are now the keepers the timekeepers of modern life and those who keep time keep morality It's interesting, if we think back on ways that ages past kind of still make their way into today, we hear examples of preachers voicing things from ages past like, repent or die. We rightly feel repelled by that, right? And yet, we nod along in agreement when tech execs today tell us, innovate or die. Isn't that fascinating? How different are those? Repent or die versus innovate or die. We must see... We must see that those who keep time today exercise the same moral power as religion did when it was timekeeper. As I heard one theologian put it, if you think toxic religious messages like total depravity or left-behind rapture theology are toxic for your kids and your nieces and your nephews, just remember it ain't much better when toxic TikTok videos is the primary former of their identities, right? Silicon Valley and the likes of Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos, they can say that they don't recommend any moral value, that they only are about innovation, but that is very much a moral value. And I want us to take this home today. Innovation as our highest moral value is very much a moral value. It is a big reason that the poor and working class experience so much injustice. Our economy and our democracy are out of sync with the speed of innovation because a just economy has to have checks and stops in place to stem inequality. And democracy, by definition, has to move slow so it can consider all of the voices. But innovation doesn't want stops and doesn't want checks and balances because those are too slow. And so when we prize innovation overall, the working class and the poor get screwed. Innovation as the highest good is a big reason the middle class feels so consumed with guilt that they're failing to keep up. Innovation as our highest moral good is a big reason for the peddling of misinformation about what is happening in Israel-Palestine. If we are going to make any headway in countering the tyranny of acceleration and its effect of societal burnout, we have to be willing to humbly admit that we are at the moral beck and call of today's timekeepers. They set the moral agenda. They're not neutral. And if we're just flying on autopilot, the working class and poor will continue to be run over. And the middle class, like me, will just roll with it. Because the guilt we internalize about falling behind in the rat race to catch up with the rich and cool obscures us from seeing our relative privilege compared to the poor day in, day out, I don't feel privileged, I feel burnt out and guilty. And do you see how insidious that is? Middle class burnout and guilt benefit bad faith actors in power. When we feel guilty, we become tools in their hands because we feel choked. The middle class feel choked into like apathy and nihilism. So the So the poor can just be exploited without resistance. That is so insidious and terrible. And whether we're talking about the market and unchecked capitalism or we're talking about a war zone, it's always the working class and the poor who experience the worst of society's consequences. The status quo is kept the status quo by continually drawing my eyes, middle-class eyes, toward the one-percenters, that that I feel drawn to like have the same stuff as instead of drawing my eyes to the rest of the 99% who have to work for a living with whom I actually have more in common. That is not freedom, right? That is no better than toxic religion of the past, controlling religious systems that we've tried to leave behind, authoritarian nation states. It's no better than that. And I think of the British rockers, The Who in the 1970s. They sang on Won't Get Fooled Again. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So there's this story from the life of Jesus in the gospel according to Luke that I want to read in response to the tyranny of acceleration. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's going to be the guest of a sinner. That was, my, that was my muttering voice. Was that effective? Yeah. He's going to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. I think middle class people in America in the 21st century are Zacchaeus. We read the word that's translated there uh, wealthy in English And we imagine him maybe at first glance as a one-percenter, right, the elite. But what would be a better parallel for Zacchaeus to today is a middle-class person. Zacchaeus is a Jew by birth. He is caught between the Roman elites that he is serving as their tax collector. They're the better parallel for the one percent, the Roman elites. He's caught between them and the Jewish masses of working people with whom he shares heritage. But... He's seen by them as a traitor because he collects taxes for the empire. He's caught in between, in the middle. Zacchaeus presents a question for today's middle class, I think. Will we continue to hitch our wagon to the wealthy elite, or will we choose solidarity with the rest of the 99% of people who have to work for a living, the poor and the working class? We're caught in the middle, And it's it's time to choose. Who are you gonna have solidarity with, the rich or the poor? And just like the pressure was on Zacchaeus in his society to compare himself with the Roman Empire elites, leaving him always wanting more, the pressure is on middle-class folks today in accelerated modernity to compare ourselves to the rich, leaving us always wanting more, because we can never stack up when we're comparing ourselves to the rich. But Zacchaeus, compelled by Jesus, decides to choose solidarity from that point on. And profoundly, he gives half of his possessions to the poor and pays back those he cheated four times over. I remember during the pandemic when people were receiving stimulus checks. And dear friends from this church gave away nearly all of the money from their checks to help pay the rent for some of their friends who were reliant on the gig economy for work and were therefore out of work in the pandemic. Thousands of dollars. These were middle class folks, by no means wealthy, but also by no means working poor. And they paid attention to that, not to the fact that they weren't wealthy. That's a Zacchaeus moment. What compels people to do such a thing? It's hard, right? It's countercultural. I don't think it's individual heroics or nobility that compels people to do those kind of things. I know these friends would cringe at being called such, which is why they don't have names in this story. I think what inspires that sort of behavior is the consistent holding up of alternative visions of a good life by communities that form us, not visions that are busy, 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 More, more, more. Innovate or die. Keep up with the rich and cool. Not those visions of a good life. Different visions of a good life held up for us by communities. Visions of a good life that are marked by radical generosity, by vulnerability and relationships, bearing suffering with others, hearing the voice of God call us beyond our own self-centered stories, When people do these sorts of things, like give away thousands of dollars even though you're not rich, within the context of community, it's not because they feel burdened to, it's because they feel called to. Do you hear that difference? It's being compelled, it's being lured, drawn. It's an experience of God when we do that. Of course, Sometimes there are these sorts of things happen in the context of like dysfunctional family relations, which is different. But in the context of genuine community, when those sorts of things happen, that is about people responding to a vision of the good life that is unlike speed and busyness, which can't deliver on their promises of fullness. When speed and busyness tell us you're going to have a full life if you stay busy, eventually we just feel burnt out. But when radical generosity tells us we're going to have a good full life if we follow this call, it delivers. What's the old phrase? It's better to give than receive, right? Like there's a reason we say those things to one another. We can talk about how hard it is and how countercultural it is to do such things for the middle class, but we can also talk about how incredibly beautiful and connecting it is to live like that. It is so beautiful and connecting to be a part of a community where stories like that get told. Communities are the best ways to consistently hold up visions that are alternatives to busy. This is what a good full life looks like. Communities hold this up. Communities like ours do the job of Jesus in the Zacchaeus story. We paint a picture of fullness, we walk around inviting people into that, even if they're hiding up in trees. So that any of us here who are working class are met in solidarity in the struggles against the tyranny of acceleration that are pounding them. They will not be alone, communities say, that hold up good visions of a full life. You will not be alone if you are working class or poor. And to the middle class we say you will be pulled out of that never-ending guilt spiral. You will be pulled out of it so that you can live the beauty and the joy of experiencing life beyond yourself. And so when there is conflict or war, we don't exacerbate injustice with unconsidered values like, go fast, get the news first. Instead, we operate with wisdom and humility and humanity. All of this, according to Jesus, is what salvation coming to one's house means. Ooh, it would be so good for salvation to come to this house, if that's what it means. So how can we as a community do this holding up of alternative visions of fullness of life? We return once again to this phrase of the fall for our church. Anybody remember it? Sacred time. This is our phrase for all fall. We need to let this sink in. Sacred time. When we keep sacred time together as a community, we cast a vision for each other and all those around us of what a good life life looks like. Sacred time is, and it's it's the, the time that we keep counter to the accelerated experience of modern life. Modern life's time is emptied of substance and values so it can be light and move fast and keep innovating. But this leaves us feeling heavy burdened the demand to keep up with that speed and injustice thrives but sacred time that we keep alongside is weighed down with intention and purpose. It keeps us in the present rather than demanding that we rush to keep up. Our time is heavier but our burdens are lighter because it doesn't come down to us alone to solve our problems or achieve the good life and this kind of time nurtures us because it's not hollowed out to move fast. It's It's substantive. There's God there in that time. And justice, not injustice, is what thrives in sacred time. So we cast a vision for a good, full life when we do these things. When we, what's some examples of sacred time? When we sing songs together about a God of love, about forgiveness defeating shame, about justice and peace defeating violence and scapegoating. That's sacred time. Casts a vision. What is a good life? This is what a good life looks like. When we serve the forgotten, the unhoused, the elderly together, as we did two weeks ago, writing letters to folks in danger of isolation, that is sacred time that shows us what's a good life, what what does a good life look like? A good life looks like taking care of people who are in danger of being isolated. I was told uh, by Christina, uh, who led that uh, project for us, that on Friday, the last of 185 letters were sent to uh, elderly folks uh, facing isolation. So well done, everybody. 185 letters. One person in our community wrote to us after that experience. Having recently experienced isolation, this activity really resonated with me, they write. At the beginning of my cancer journey, I was basically homebound for almost a year. As I wrote in our project, these people, I remembered how much I appreciated each time people reached out to me during that difficult time sacred time. That's what a good life looks like. We participate in sacred time and cast a vision for a good life when we stop and slow down and remember the lives of loved ones lost as we will next week in our remembrance service, when we celebrate children as we will in two Sundays from now with our fall baby dedications, and when we engage in prayer and ritual to hear God remind us we are not islands, none of us. Neither are we line items on a transaction sheet. We are human beings built for connection. When we remind ourselves that, when we let God remind ourselves of that, that is sacred time. Every Sunday when we show up here and turn the Davis Theater into a church, it is sacred time and it's forming us again and again and again. What does a good life look like? What does a good life look like? So keeping sacred time won't immediately um, magically fix our burnout. I know that a lot of you probably relate to what we've started talking about of either the external forces beating you down, that's how you experience burnout, or the internal guilt feeling, that's how you experience burnout. I'm positive that many of us feel one or the other or both of those. Sacred time is not going to magically change that. This is not a quick fix. As I've been saying every week, this is not like a workshop where it's like the three easy steps to stop being burnt out. I don't have those for us. Maybe we can find some great things in other spaces in our lives, therapy, books. We're, you know, big on resource sharing here in this community. So we want to soak up all we can. But I want to remind us, that this is not, if you're feeling burnt out, it is not your problem. It's not your fault. That's what I wanna say. I wanna do the, the goodwill hunting. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's atmospheric, it's all around us. And so, what we need are these, these slow burn solutions to burnout, of keeping sacred time together. It will not magically change us, but every time we participate in something that is sacred time. It refocuses us just a little bit on a vision of a good life that is light burden but heavy time in that beautiful way that is not busy, 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 go, 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 faster, 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 more, more, more. And when when we, when we let that form us over time, when we are then when we are moved with like sorrow or compassion at some tragedy or terror happening in our world then we feel not a burden to respond but a call to respond do you know the difference between those two things a pull that's 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 magnetic those calls to us are the voice of god that is very different than oh God, I have to respond to this because what will people think of me otherwise? Or, oh God, I have to respond to this because I just feel like I'm so guilty all the time. What do I do? That is so different than that magnetic pull from the voice of God. You are called to respond. If you are curious whether or not you have enough sacred time in your life, consider whether you feel burdened to respond or called to respond. I wonder if you can ask yourself that question right now a little bit. I mean, we, we have something shouting at us. There is horrible tragedy happening in our world. And what we want to do as people who care about this is to be called to respond, not burdened to respond. Does that make sense? It's so hard. It takes regular forming in spaces that can treat us with humanity and love and dignity and respect and not just you know push us because we have to go faster. And this can be such a space for us to feel called to respond to the horrors of our world and not burdened. I would love to pray for us in that space. If you would maybe take a deep breath with me. If you need to get comfortable in your seat. I'm like hunched over because I was excited. And so I need to get comfortable. Forgive me. as I pray for us, you can close your eyes or keep your eyes open. Sometimes I like to just, like, I'll leave my eyes open, but I'll, like, focus on a little corner of the room so I don't get distracted. And I want to, I'm going to pray for us in this space. God of love who sees the plight of the disinherited, the working class, God of love who sees the guilt and exhaustion of the middle class and who treats every one of us, no matter where we are on that spectrum, with dignity and humanity. God of love, we need you. This just feels so intractable. Whether we're thinking about the violence in Gaza or our, our tomorrow at work, it just feels so intractable. But these things are connected and you are guiding us and calling us and we long to hear your call to rise above all of the noise of the burdens and demands of our accelerated life. How are you speaking to us, urging us to come down from the tree like Zacchaeus if we are middle class, to make profound choices to choose solidarity with the poor and the working class. How are you you coming to us with love and, and solidarity yourself if we are those working class, if we are just so exhausted by the time clock, by the massive structures that just beat us down and have no mercy for our unique story? God, we need to be seen by one who sees our unique story. And how can we, God, as a community, join one another's stories so we are not all just living them separately, having to tell people when they ask, how are you? Yeah, good, but busy. Yeah, uh, you know, good, but busy. But we can say, oh, my God, I'm, I'm freaking exhausted. I need, I, I need help. Or we can say, this horrible thing happened this week. Would you pray for me? Or we can say, I see you, I see how hard you're working. You're not alone. What does it look like for us to join one another on each other's teams, speaking to one another? We long for you to call us so that we can cast a vision for our neighborhoods and each other of what a good life looks like. And it is not keep up or else, innovate or die. It's something so much more. And we receive your call this morning, God. We receive your call individually for anything that's going on in each of our minds. Personally, we receive your voice and we receive your call as a unit, as a community together. In Jesus' name, amen.